So one thing about the outdoor service uh, that is always a good reminder to me because we, we now begin and end our summer with an outdoor service is that uh, it's one of the silver linings of COVID. It was actually COVID that sent us outside and uh, enabled us to keep on going. So I'm grateful for that. Um, so Jesus makes this rather um, familiar statement in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. If I had to give one message a year, which is really unfair, but uh, it's like asking someone what your favorite Bible verse is for all of time. Uh, if I had to give one message a year, though, not necessarily the most important message, but a message that seems to be necessary uh, at least annually, it's the message I'm ab about to give today. In all the years that Kathy and I have done pre-marriage counseling, the article that's basically a summary of this message that we give out. It's the article that we get the most responses on. In fact, 12 years ago, not long after we came here, we had a seminar at this church, and it was on this topic. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, Paul is writing to basically all the churches. It was a letter to Ephesus, but it was meant to be circulated. And he tells them to walk in a manner... Uh, worthy of their calling. He says to walk with all humility and gentleness, bearing with one another love, because those things are necessary for what he's about to say, eager to maintain or preserve the unity of the Spirit. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, the Holy Spirit naturally binds us together in peace and then charges us with the responsibility of preserving and maintaining what he creates. So here's another way to say it. I believe that unresolved conflict in the church is a greater threat on peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace fakers, not the peace breakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So let's pray and ask the Lord to give us ears to hear. So Father, this morning as we come to your word, may we do so as though it is your word May it be only your word that we hear for the glory of Jesus' sake. Amen. So James chapter 4, if you have a bulletin, uh, the text is for us there. And uh, if, uh, if not, if you have a Bible, you can find that. James chapter 4 starts off this way <clears throat> with this question. What is it that causes quarrels and fights among you? Now, let me just put a pin in that for a second and tell you what's going on in this little letter by Jesus' brother named James that was meant to be circulated to all the New Testament churches. Uh, 
basically, it's one of the most practical books in all of the Bible. James addresses common church problems in every church, in every age, in every culture. Those common church problems, to, to oversimplify it, they can be categorized into kind of two categories. And that is um, people impressing favoritism and people judging conflicts. So people impressing favoritism and people judging conflicts. And so halfway through or almost toward the end of this, uh, this little letter of five chapters, James asks this question, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Now, it's easy to just brush through that, but just think about this for a moment. He doesn't say, what are you is the source of your fighting and then he goes on to answer his own question with a question is it not this that your passions are at war within you or another word for passions is pleasure uh, another way to think about it is is just strong desires and let me just do a little rabbit trail for half a second it's not wrong to be seeking pleasure as a believer. It's not wrong to have passion in life. In fact, next week we're going to do a little quick survey of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book where God has to command us to enjoy the things of this world. Just think about that for a moment. Uh, so the problem isn't having passions and it's not having pleasures. The problem is that they become too strong. In fact, most evil desires, most evil desires are godly desires in excess. What one theologian called inordinate are, are excessive desires. And then he says in verse 2, the very first line, here's the problem. You desire something, and because you can't have it, what do you do? You murder the proof that we're having trouble with solving conflicts shows up in our relationships. When our desires get frustrated, we murder one another. Now, I just want you to imagine for a moment if today I, I stood up here in front of you and said, Red Cedar, stop killing one another. I would think for at least half a second I'd get your attention. Now, James isn't intentionally being provocative here. He's not just trying to use drama to get his point across. He's actually remembering the Sermon on the Mount that his brother gave when Jesus said, if you have hatred in your heart or if you have anger in your heart towards someone else and it's not checked, you're actually killing them. In other words, the same thing that leads to murder starts first in the heart. Before people are actually murdered, they're first murdered in their heart. And it's so easy to murder people in our heart without ever taking action on that. And so it's appropriate for him to speak about it as, as murder. When our desires are frustrated, we go to war to get what we want because we want it too badly. That's the idea here. And then listen to these verses, uh, verses 4 and 5. Imagine me addressing you this way. Why, you adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? The real sin beneath the sin is what's addressed in verses 4 and 5. There's always our behavioral sin. In this case, the behavioral sin of conflict is fighting, it's tension, it's words that we say. Uh, that's not the real sin. That's the behavioral sin on the surface. What James is doing is getting to the real sin beneath the behavioral sins of conflict. And he says this, the sin of conflict is not ultimately how we treat others, it's how we treat God. So here it is, the root cause of all horizontal conflict is vertical conflict. The root cause of all horizontal fighting is a vertical fighting with God ultimately. Our desires become so strong that they actually wind up replacing God. And because we're cheating on God, adultery, spiritual adultery, we are ultimately murdering others. The reason we're murdering others is because we're cheating on God. That's what James is trying to get us to wrap our head around and rethink this whole idea of conflict. What does it mean when the Bible says repeatedly that God is a jealous lover? It's really hard for us to get our head around that because all of our jealousy is contaminated. Even our best form of jealousy is contaminated with sin. So when we speak about God being a jealous lover, his jealousy is a holy jealousy. It's not obsessive. His jealousy is protective. Think about it this way. God isn't, God isn't jealous like we are. Hey, I want you to only have eyes for me. I want you to only love me. I'm threatened by anything else you love close to me. That's not what's going on with God's jealousy. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, God is not threatened by our love for other things. He's not threatened by our love for other people. He's not threatened by our love for experiences that we have. But this is what he does. He knows how easily we can turn his gifts into God replacements. Human beings have a flawless track record of destroying beautiful gifts from God. Think of the gift of sex. Think of the, this planet that we have. Think of singleness. Think of careers. All of these gifts from God, we have an amazing track record of being able to destroy these beautiful things, these beautiful experiences, and these beautiful people by demanding of them what only God himself can supply. We literally squeeze the life out of them because we turn those gifts into God's. I don't know if... Uh, if anybody under 40 might remember this, but maybe even under 50, but how many of you have heard of or remember something they put on vehicles, usually companies put them on vehicles, it was called a governor. Do, do anybody, you know what that is? So a governor, and especially back in the 70s when uh, 
President Carter dis, what, dis, uh, made a decision along with others to cap our interstate system at 55 mile an hour because we were on a gas shortage. But you'd put uh, governors in these vehicles and no matter how hard you pressed on the gas pedal, you could not go above 55. It was every parent's dream probably to put a governor in their kid's car, but it never worked out that way. But uh, So think of it this way, our desires, our good desires from God, if they do not have a divine governor on them, we will get so used to speeding beyond our capability while the simultaneously thinking we have control of our desires. And God in his great mercy will thwart those desires. He will interfere. And here's what happens in conflict. Conflict always starts out with wanting something. I desire. But when that object that I want becomes essential to my fulfillment, it becomes essential to my happiness, it becomes essential to my security, and I don't get it, I desire changes to I demand. And once you hit the I demand level, you can't help to go to the next level, which is I judge. The more we expect something from others, the more likely we are to judge them when they fail to meet that expectation. And then we begin to speculate about their motives and our expectations become conditions on how we will treat them. I desire, I demand, I judge, and after I judge, I inevitably punish. I punish by pouting, by stomping, by withdrawing, by manipulating, by imposing guilt and shame, by violence, abuse. It's a common, ordinary pattern and let me just say this, if you have not seen this pattern in yourself, I guarantee you that every single person here does this. Every single person here does this. I desire, when I don't get my desires, I demand. And if my demands are not met, then I judge. And if that doesn't work, I punish. And this vicious cycle continues over and over again. But I love the fact that the Bible does not push our face into the mud and leave us there. The Bible's always about getting us up out of the mud and reminding us of the beautiful image God has in us and making that new. And that's where our passage goes on to give us hope in the midst of this very ordinary human thing. But here's what I want to do, something I don't normally do. Can I just, for 30 seconds, pause and allow each one of us to simply ask the Lord right now, Lord, is there some conflict that I'm involved in, some way that I've gotten used to dealing with another human being where I am really not making peace, I'm faking peace, or I'm breaking peace? Let's just take 30 seconds and do that. And now listen to this beautiful promise in James chapter 4, verse 6. 
followed by a number of verses that are all about actions we're supposed to take. But first the promise. He gives more grace, verse 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I love these four words. God opposes the proud. One of the greatest statements about the awesome power of God is not that he spoke and it was, not that he said there was light and there was. I think one of the most powerful statements of God is that he opposes pride. He and he alone has the ability to crush out the pride in our heart that is killing us and killing others around us. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so really, in these verses 7 through 10, these action steps, I just got three things. I'll say them quickly, and then I'll go over them each with a little more detail. We need to learn to go vertically. Secondly, we need to get in the habit of asking our Father before fighting with others. And third, we need to seek winning, or we need to seek wisdom, not winning. That's the problem. Uh, We need to seek wisdom, not winning. So go vertical. The problem that uh, happens here is that you've become fixated on the horizontal. You've become fixated on whatever it is you're fighting about. And what the Lord says in these verses where he says to uh, submit, to resist, to draw near, to cleanse your hands, be wretched, mourn, humble yourselves. What he's basically saying here is break the devil's foothold. Fix the kink between you and me. Yield up your desires to me. Your wants are choking you, and as a result, you're choking others. Sometimes we're convinced that we're right about something. We may even be right about something. We're convinced that that something must be. We can't see any other alternative, but it's blinding us to what really matters. We can lose our ability to separate out what's important from what's essential. And I'll tell you, there's no easier place for me to find examples of this than in my own marriage. Uh, There are so many times when in conflicts with Kathy, I've thought, you know, objectively speaking, uh, I've actually given up my desires more frequently than you have, uh, because I keep count of that, of course. Um, And then when I'm criticized or I've given advice that I didn't ask for, uh, I tend to take it personally. And once that happens, the inner wall goes up, and that is a prime place for resentment to start taking a foothold on your heart. And you know what's interesting is during that whole time of the conflict, there's one thing that's not going through my mind, which is this. I wonder if right now God is trying to say something to me through someone who sees me up close and disagrees with me. I'm not even open to that because I'm so convinced I'm right. And as a result, God tends to not be able to speak to me in those moments. He might be very well exposing something that I can't see and won't see because I'm too heated in the conflict. So I need to go vertical. I need to stop fixating on the horizontal things we're talking about. 
I need to break the devil's foothold. I need to submit, draw near, resist the devil. I need to fix the kink. I need to yield. I need to realize that my wants that seem so right and so important right now are actually choking me out and choking God out and ultimately choking the person I'm fighting with. So go vertical. The second thing is the habit of asking your father before fighting with others. Look at verse 3, or verses 2 and 3. You covet and cannot obtain, so what do you do? You fight and quarrel. And why are you doing that? Because you're not talking to God. You do not have because you do not ask. Are there some things that you want in life that you don't actually ask God for? Because I, I know this thought goes through your head. Those don't seem to be appropriate things to ask God for. They seem a bit too selfish. Uh, they seem a bit too uh, worldly. Well, have you even talked to him about it? How do you know? Uh, maybe he actually does want you to talk to him about that. Maybe he does actually want to give you these things. But it's just so easy to want something and to begin to interact with others to get it when you've never been in the habit of talking to God uh, about that. So it's not just asking God for the things that you want before you demand them from others. Notice verse 3. Even when you do ask, you don't receive it because you're asking with wrong motives to spend it on your passions. So it's not only do we need to ask God for what we want. We need to ask for it for God. So when you're asking for something for God, you might be asking for something awesome. Lord, would you please heal me? There's nothing wrong at all. Obviously, we, we naturally ask God for those things. But we also need to ask in the same breath, Lord, whatever the outcomes, I want this to be for your glory. So every time we're asking for something, we're not just asking for it for our own personal sake, but we're asking with an open hand that it's ultimately for God. Sometimes God won't answer our prayer because he's got a better answer in mind, which is something we would never pray for. So ask for it for, for God and don't ask and ask God for what you want. And then finally, seek wisdom, not winning. The passage that Didi read for us in chapter 3 speaks about two kinds of wisdom. The wisdom from above and the wisdom that's demonic or the wisdom from below. It compares these two kinds of wisdom. There actually is in life a kind of um, wisdom, if you will, a, a sense of in which you feel so right about something that becomes so blinding. It's a blinding wisdom because you feel so right, you go for what you think is right, you actually get results, and you also get long-lasting tension with people. But there's a quieter wisdom that James 3 talks about. There is a superior wisdom, a wisdom that on the surface looks like you're giving up, a wisdom that looks like compromise, because this wisdom tends to yield a lot. It tends to flex a lot, but in the end, it produces rightness and lasting peace. In fact, there's two words here that describe the wisdom from below, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy is when you're angry for something. Uh, you're angry because you're not getting what you deserve or what you think is right. And I, I like to think of that as peace faking. 
Bitter jealousy is something that you tend to keep inside. You don't always see it on the surface. And so one of the greatest problems that I have seen in many, many years of ministry, it's one of those things that just uh, drives me crazy. And it is, it is so pervasive. People often use the term passive-aggressive. You know, it's when we're, we smile, we're nice to one another, we're, especially when we've had some kind of disagreement with one another. But we never let on how deeply and strongly we felt about the thing that we want. And so while we're nice on the outside, there's tension on the inside. And that unspoken tension that we'll never tell the other person because we have paralyzing fear that will offend them winds up getting spoken to someone else, which then becomes a foothold for disunity and skirmishes in the family. Bitter jealousy, peace faking, and then there's selfish ambition. This is the opposite of peace faking. This is peace breaking. These are people that do whatever it takes to get what they believe is right. These are usually the people that over-argue you. Or they overvolume someone else. They sort of bully their way into getting what's important. And they think they're achieving peace, but they're really breaking peace, but still getting what they want. And that's why I say this kind of wisdom is blinding. Our preferences become priorities for everyone. Our righteous anger becomes justified, ungodly vengeance. So much of what really matters to us doesn't really matter. And that's what I love about this wisdom from above. It has the ability to calm our passions so that we can see what really matters. I mean, after all, we're going to take bread and cup in just a moment. Blood was shed to give us this wisdom from above. That's why there's two words here, just like there were two words for blinding wisdom. There are two words for this superior wisdom from above. There's the word pure. That's the first description of it here in James 3. This wisdom is pure. In other words, Christ, when you, when you give your life to Christ and he enters into your life, he actually implants in you higher desires. You have a desire to honor God, even if it means your own dishonor. You have a desire to hallow his name. It's Jesus' spirit in us using Jesus' message to us to regulate our natural war-making desires. And without him, you cannot be a peacemaker because your desires are always going to outstrip your conscience without Christ. So there are these pure desires to honor God. And then the other word is meekness. He says, by your good conduct, let you show your works in the meekness of wisdom. I love the definition of, of meekness. It is strength to accommodate the weaknesses of others. It is strength to accommodate the weaknesses of others. So let's put that into this to the, to the language of conflict. Meekness is strength to accommodate the weaknesses of those who irritate us, those who offend us, and those who harm us. It's sort of a combination, this idea of meekness, it's a combination of humility and mercy. We're not putting up with people that we can't stand while simultaneously looking down on them. What we're actually doing in, with meekness 
is we are seeking to understand what's beneath their behavior that's creating this conflict. Their behavior is bothering us, and, and what meekness does is it helps us get past their behavior and start asking the question, I wonder what's causing this behavior that's causing this conflict. And while we're doing that, we're also being ready to own our part in the conflict, whether it's 5% or 100%. We're simultaneously trying to understand the person, not just what they're arguing, but we're trying to understand why it's so important to them, and simultaneously we're owning any part we have in that conflict. That's what meekness does. That's the beauty of this wisdom from above that's available to a believer. So we need to go vertical. We need to be in the habit of asking the Father for what we think we want and must be. And we need to seek what's wise, not what's right. Sometimes we can be wanting something that's right, but God says it's not the time to get it. That's why wisdom always trumps what's right. I want to talk, I want to use this idea of conflict to prepare us to take uh, communion here in just a moment. Uh, before I do that, I want to invite the worship team back up and also the guys serving communion, if you could just kind of stand at the tables here since we don't have seats in the front today. And as we say, uh, every Lord's Day when we gather, as we come to the bread and cup, the body and blood of Christ, this table is for anybody here who recognizes Jesus as the only one who can save humanity from themselves. And as the king, who as we sang about earlier, is actually reigning right now. So this is for people who have uh, surrendered their sin to a savior who cleanses them. And this is for people who have bowed in allegiance to the only king there is. You're welcome to this table, so you'll come up in a moment. And then I'll lead us in a few moments after we all have bread and cup together. But if you think about it, what the meal that we're about to eat, it's all about the greatest conflict ever, right? It's about the great conflict between God and humanity. A conflict that was resolved by the life, death, and resurrection of God's own Son, who secured a peace for us that is a forever peace. There's nothing we can do to jeopardize that peace once we are in Christ. God required two things to resolve this conflict. He required that our sins must be punished and that our lives must be righteous. But there was a problem. We could not pay for our own sin and we could not live a righteous life. So God, in his great, undeserved, inexhaustible love for us, provided his own son to do both of those things. Christ was punished for our sin and Christ also performed our righteousness for us. And that's what we come to celebrate here. And so as, as we come, think about your first response to Jesus Christ. You yielded to him. You yield up control. You bowed to him as your savior and king. That was your first movement toward Jesus. And you decided to let go of trusting in your own plan and your own control. And you surrendered to God's ultimate control and to God's plan. And that first movement toward Jesus is our constant 
everyday movement toward Jesus. Even as we come to the table, we sort of practice that movement yet again. Think of all these verbs here in James chapter 4. As you come today, you're coming to the God who can take your pride because your very act of coming is an act of humility and he can take your pride away from you. You uh, submit yourself to God. You're resisting the devil as you come forward here. You're drawing near to God as you come forward. You're getting your hands cleansed, you sinners. Your hearts purified. You're humbling yourself before the Lord so that the Lord can exalt you. So that's what we're doing. So blessed are these peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. They shall be recognized as sons of God. That's what peacemakers are. Let's take